a little, I'm having a little trouble talking today. Yeah, join the club. Yeah. I really wanted to make the joke of, huh, there's 81 different options. Let's start with number one. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and we're going to list them all. Save Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security without cuts. Have to do it. Get rid of the fraud, get rid of the waste and abuse, but save it. For the first time ever, Social Security spending tops $1 trillion. When it comes to Social Security, what you don't know can cost you big time. Welcome to Retiring Today, the podcast that guides you to and through retiring. I'm your host, Molly Nelson, and I'm here with producer extraordinaire Rochelle Smith. I'm also here with part-time jazz lounge singer. Oh, that's, that's a good one. Certified financial planner. There's only three of us in the room. Lauren Merkel. You know, actually, since you've taken that gulp of water, your jazz lounge singer voice has left us. Hmm. I was really going to have you sing like a few bars. Like you got like a jazz singer you're into, like a, like Frank Sinatra. you more of a... I like Frank. Frank yeah. Sinatra. All right. All right. A little my way. You ready? No. <laughs> I can never it, get anyone okay. to sing. I'll just lay it in under. Yes. Me. Make it sound really good. Okay. Today's topic is social security. It's something that affects almost all workers in the United States. And 97% of people who are retired are benefiting from social security. You pay into it. Most people pay into it during their working years. And then the working years go away and you get to reap the benefit of what you paid into it. So social security is a really important thing. And it's a big part of a lot of people's retirement portfolios. So here to break it down for us today, Lauren Merkel will talk to us about some of the options you have. There are a lot of options when it comes to social security, Lauren. You have up to 81 different options, depending upon whether you're single or you're married. And that's, that's, that's exciting, but it's also really daunting. But I would say it's a lot better to have so many different options. And it's a lot better to have the complexities in social security than otherwise just having the three options that's referenced on your social security statement. If you just had the three options on the social security statement, then you're less likely to get more out of this investment did you hear that? It's an investment. You have to pay into this. You don't have a choice. You've been paying into this for 20, 30, 40 years. So now it's a matter of how do you get the most out of it that you possibly can. If you just had three options, you're less likely to get the most out of it than if you had up to 81 different options. So now it's a matter of how do you use those options to the best of your ability to get the best return on your investment. And that is going to be probably the main thing we're going to talk about today is some of those options and how to really maximize the options. And I think we're going to learn too that it's different for each person. Married couples, if you're single, you're looking at a different strategy. If you have a pension, Social Security plays in differently. You can't look at Social Security just kind of in a bubble by itself. You can, but I wouldn't recommend it. And then that's what actually one of the things that we talk about all the time at our educational classes is is, is very tempting to take Social Security and say, here's a couple different options I have. Here's what I should be doing with Social Security and not taking into consideration the other resources that you, you do have. We see that happen all the time. But if you take into consideration the other resources that you do have, now you can get really creative, not only with those investable resources, maybe a pension that you have, but also with the up, the up to 81 different options that you have with Social Security to really make all of these things that work the best for you. So we'll break down Social Security in just a moment. But first, but first it's tax time and time for headlines. Two dreaded words this time of year. Tax time. Tax season officially begins. Ugh. Tax season. Tax season. It's the most wonderful time of the year. 
many people getting ready to file their taxes and there are a few things to consider here as you probably working with your professional who should know about these laws, but things to consider as you're getting the paperwork ready and getting ready for tax time. Health insurance, Lauren, this is new this year as you get ready to file. No longer a penalty if you don't have health insurance. Well, remember back when the Affordable Care Act first went into place, one of the most controversial aspects of that act was if you decided not to carry health care coverage or qualified health care coverage, you had to pay a penalty. So you were actually penalized. You had to pay, in essence, a tax to Uncle Sam because you chose not to carry health care. And the reason that happened is the, the pool of people, the, the pool of healthy people uh, of, of paying for health care coverage needed to be increased. So there had to be some kind of mandate, some kind of penalty to get everybody paying for health care. Because what we saw is that there's a, the younger generation, you know, you're 20 to 30 years old. You don't go to the doctor very much. You don't use your health care very much. So why pay the premiums for health care? That's what they were they were afraid of. So as of 2020, those health care premiums now, or I'm sorry, the health care uh, penalty, if you choose not to have health care, that penalty no longer exists. And you recall the standard deduction doubling under the new tax law that uh, did go into effect last filing year. An estimated 90% of taxpayers are expected to take that deduction this year. Single individuals, the standard deduction, $12,200. That goes up just a little bit for inflation, right, Lauren? That's sli up slightly from last filing. Yeah, on average, that does go up with inflation every year. So for the 2020 tax year, when you go to file your taxes, the standard deduction has increased for single filers to 12400 and then for married filers, most married filers, for twelve to $12,800. A few things that were set to expire did get extended by lawmakers. Uh, to claim medical expenses on your taxes, the total must exceed a certain percentage of your adjusted gross income. So definitely the kind of things you want to be talking about with your tax professional. Cryptocurrency. We did a podcast on cryptocurrency. You can find it uh, wherever you get podcasts. It's called What Really Is Cryptocurrency? We break down kind of uh, the risk involved, some of the, the high rewards for the few, and, and Lauren's take on some of these alternative investments if you want to check that out. So cryptocurrency and taxes, though, kind of a gray area is what a lot of professionals are saying. Generally, it's seen as property, not currency. Um, you have to fill out an extra form if this is something that you've invested in in this last uh, year. So um, definitely, again, the, the takeaway is talk to your CPA. Well, if you're using cryptocurrency, the easiest way to record keep this is to use some kind of major exchange like a like a Coinbase, because then it details the transactions. And, and really what you want to focus on is what is the amount that you've invested into your cryptocurrencies? If you've invested $1,000, keep track of what that amount is because that's what your cost basis is, which means if you realize a gain, that's an amount that you're not going to have to pay taxes on. So if you're a heavy trader in cryptocurrency, you're, you're making exchanges from one to another to another to another, or you're just buying and selling one or two different cryptocurrencies, again, you're going to want to keep track of that activity because you do not want to have to file uh, to pay taxes on something that you've already invested in and paid taxes on. So no big, huge tax changes for this uh, upcoming filing season here. But Lauren, you know that things will probably change in 2020. What are you, what are you watching for? Well, the biggest thing we're, we're paying attention to is what do they, what, what's the administration want to implement for the year 2020? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's an election year. There's no surprise there. <laughs> uh, Wait, what? I haven't seen a thing on that. <laughs> 
Yeah, I bet. T- taxes are uh, a highly advertised type of topic. So they have talked about implementing some other tax tax measures for 2020. But as far as the, the old tax law, there's not a whole lot new that will take place automatically for the year, year 2020. And when it comes to tax planning, it cannot just be an April conversation, especially for pre-retirees and retirees, those who, who are looking to really maybe take advantage of the current tax climate, knowing that the tax tax climate changes. It's got to be a long-term tax plan to really be tax efficient. If we're just paying attention to our taxes once or twice a year, that's not tax planning. If we're just paying attention to our taxes in February and March, and uh, receiving all the tax documents, the W-2s, the 1099s, and then we're taking them to our CPA, we're filing our taxes online. That's just recording tax history. That's not tax planning. So what we advocate for and what we really do for our families is we pay attention to the tax laws, the tax legislative changes, but also each individual tax situation throughout the entire course of the year to identify, and what we do starting in the beginning of the year is identify some different tax strategies that might be applicable to each individual or each couple. And then throughout the course of the year, we monitor the environment, we monitor tax legislative changes, and we say, okay, so what we are planning on in January and February for 2020, this is an excellent time in June to execute on a piece or all of that strategy for a variety of factors. Or maybe it doesn't come to fruition in the summer. Maybe we, we need to implement those strategies in November, in December of 2020. But either way, we're ready. We have... Uh, we have the information at our disposal. We have the customized plan. So when legislative changes take place, we're ready to go. Or just the economic conditions change to make whatever strategy we're trying to implement uh, more readily accessible and, and uh, makes more sense to implement at that particular time. Or maybe December comes along and we say, well, let's void the plan that we had in place because it doesn't make sense anymore. And let's start preparing for 2021, 2022. And without getting too far in the weeds, you didn't mention specifics, but just, you know, an overview that can be what Roth conversions can be one tax strategy. What other kinds of things are on a case by case basis that you sometimes implement? One of the big strategies that we pay attention to on an, on a yearly basis for almost all of our families is, does it make sense to start doing Roth conversions? There's $29 trillion in, in retirement savings. The majority of that money is in pre-tax, which means at some point you will have to pay taxes on that money. So if you're intentional about when you pay taxes on it, now you can be a little bit more intentional uh, intentional on how much money you pay in taxes. And if you take, some, take advantage of tax rates while they're on sale for you, which for many people is in this current tax environment, then you can, you can typically pay less to buy out your business partner, Uncle Sam, on those pre-tax monies. And in 2020, there could be some real good opportunities for many people. Because we do expect to have the stock market to be a little bit more volatile than what we saw in 2019. And that volatility doesn't have to be a bad thing. Sure, when you when you log into your accounts and you see your accounts are down a little bit, that's not fun. But you don't have to just sit on your hands. You can take advantage of it. If it makes sense to do Roth conversions throughout the course of 2020, when we, we see the market take a little correction, a little step back, that might be a really good opportunity to implement one of those Roth conversions. But if you don't already have that on your radar, if you're not already planning for does this year make sense to do a Roth conversion, when that opportunity comes, it's going to pass by and you're not going to really be able to take advantage of it. And that's really the value of tax planning throughout the entire course of the year as opposed to thinking about it once or twice every year. 
If you want more information from the article that we have been referencing on taxes, that article will be in our show notes. And now to the main topic, it's social security because like we said, 97% of retirees are taking advantage of this benefit. But first, let's go to school, shall we, Rochelle? Okay. Do you have your uh, notebook with you? I have a little notepad here. Um, I'm going back to when I was in school and used notebooks. I suppose now the kids are using their laptops to take the notes, right? Oh, I sure don't. I bet they are. But I'm going to go back <laughs> to a time far, far away when I was in school and I had a notebook and I took it with me and I had a professor and they stood at the front and they lectured. And that professor right now is Lauren Merkel. He is going to give us a little history lesson. Professor Merkel, take us back to 1935. No, he was not alive then. But that's when... <laughs> Sometimes so, I feel like... Right? <laughs> that's when the retirement age was 65. The average life expectancy was 58. It was a different time. It was when Social Security was 1935 when it was implemented. You know, you know, you take the history lesson from here. I'll, you were doing a great job. No, I, I, I you, were just yeah, keep going you know, when <laughs> I wasn't a student long ago, I I did not talk this much. I need to let the professor professor teach. You know, at, at our classes, a lot of times we will see the baby boomer demographic taking notes on their on their iPad or on their laptop. So it's uh, they're, they're very technologically advanced. Oh yeah, for sure. 1935 is when the Social Security legislation was first enacted, but it didn't actually come into fruition. People didn't actually start receiving the first check until 1937. And in 1937, it wasn't even a first annuity payment, meaning it was just a one-time lump sum check. Because no one had paid into it at that point, right? There was not a Social Security you weren't paying, or were you paying into it in just the form of taxes? Ida Mae Fuller was the first individual to pay into social security Ida may fuller we just over, this is hmm. this is called getting schooled over a two-year period of time she paid into it about 24 dollars. she was the first one to start receiving the first annuity check that started in 1940 so we have two different checks going out we have a first lump sum check of 1937 how much do you think that was that lump sum check five bucks four bucks 17 cents Oh my gosh. <laughs> Lump sum check in the mail to you direct from Uncle Sam. 17 cents. Woohoo! Wow. Okay, I'm 35. That still wasn't much money. I know we've got inflation working here, the, but. The cost of a postage stamp in 1937 was three cents. Okay. I'll give you a little context. Interesting. All right, got the context. So Ida Mae Fuller in 1940 started receiving the first monthly annuity check. She paid it in over a two year period of time, about $24. Her annuity check started out at $22, $22 and some change. Okay, that doesn't seem like a bad payout. And she collected for decades. She paid in $24 and collected for, for decades. So it was a pretty good return for her. Yeah. Professor Merkel, I have a question. Yes, ma'am, front row. <laughs> um, <laughs> why is this item May Fuller? Is she Was she kind of the test case that they followed to, to kind of watch this and see if it was a good program or no, why? Okay. It, there has to be a first. When you, whenever you start a program, there has to be a first. So she would just happen to be like the first check they wrote. Were other people right. at this time getting Nin these checks yes, as 19, well? Yes. She wasn't the only. That's, okay. that's right. Nin 1940 is when the first annuity check started. And she just happened to be the first one to get printed. Okay, thank you. Notes dubiously taken over here in case there's a quiz. Yes. So in 1940, the very first age that, that you could elect Social Security benefits was age 65. What's the first age you can elect today? 
62. Your benefit, age 62. Oh, sorry. I'll raise my hand. Excuse me. Nah. Yeah, no, you don't have to raise my hand. Oh, okay. Yeah, just, just shout it out. This is a I'm shout really taking this, this is a shout it out I'm type really of class. taking this school thing. To, I'm, I'm really just yeah. feeling my character here. You know how sometimes you go, or some classes, if you think back, some people, some teachers were really formal. Yeah. Right, you have to raise your hand. Right. And if you didn't, you got the, especially back in 1935, what'd they do? <laughs> Hitch with a ruler. The Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not this. Okay, wait, we're not, right, wait, that great. was a thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, it, oh, it's man. a serious thing. No teacher hit me with a ruler. So watch yourself. (laughs) So 65 was the first age of eligibility to elect in 1940. Today, it's 62. Today, average life expectancy is age 86 for men, age 89 for women. This was not intended to last 30 to 40 years. In In 1940, when it first started... With the average life expectancy of around 58, it was not intended for people to collect payments for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And so there has to be a lot of changes that had to take place with Social Security, and that's what we've seen. And there's been, since 1940, there's been consistent change, and we will continue to see consistent change. But one of the things that we talk about quite a bit with Social Security planning is if you are within the baby boomer demographic, if I would say, if you to make it easy, if you're 60 plus, there probably will not be substantial changes to what you receive from your Social Security payment. So this this old feeling of I'm, when I'm 62, I'm just going to take it while I could get it because Social Security is going to go broke. I'm not. I may not receive my Social Security benefits. There's a Social Security study that comes out almost every year, and the last one said that if if by 2032 no legislative changes have taken place, then People will their payments will be reduced by twenty five percent, so people are rushing to turn it on at sixty two, saying it might go broke. That is probably not going to happen for the baby boomer demographic or anybody sixty plus. There could be some changes, and one of the the probably one of the biggest changes that is most probable would be that there could be some means testing, meaning that if you make over a certain amount in retirement whatever that amount is, 150000 or 200000 then you may not receive all of your Social Security benefits. For the, vast, for the vast majority of the retirees, it will be there as substantially promised. Which is good because one thing I read said that for 25% of retirees, this makes up 90% of their income. So some people are living off of Social Security, and, and about half of seniors – that, that takes Social Security, it provides about 50% of their income. Yeah, it's an unfortunate reality of, of today's retirement um, universe is that there are many people who are substantially dependent or all, all dependent on Social Security income. And that's why, you know, whether you're substantially dependent or all of your income is Social Security, you know, if you're looking to go into retirement, it makes, it makes Social Security planning that much more important. Because it, for many people, this if we add up the monthly benefits over the course of their lifetime, for many people, it could be a $700,000 portfolio. For many people, we see it being a, over a million-dollar portfolio. So it's a, it's a substantial portfolio, and that's how we want to tr- treat it. And the, the proper attention needs to be paid to it to make sure you're making the best decisions. So I can't imagine back in 1935, Lauren, when uh, this, this this whole thing started, I can't imagine there were 81 different options that you had when turning on your Social Security benefit. There were a lot less options. It was a lot more streamlined process. You, you, you aren't eligible to take it until 65. You can wait up until 70 if you want to. So you have some kind of time frame before then or in between there that you can take your benefits. Today, with all the legislative changes that have taken place since then, 
Now it's a lot more complex. And again, kind of what we were talking about in the, in the opening, that complexity, you can use that to your advantage. So don't be afraid of it. Don't be intimidated. Take your time, do the research, do the analysis, and then make sure you're making the best decisions and use that complexity to your benefit. Of those 81 options we often talk about, do you find that there are a handful that sort of rise to the top as the best option for the families and individuals that you work with? Most typically. What, where we start with, with Social Security planning is, is we use technology. And we narrow down the 81 different options to a more manageable subset of options. Typically, let's call it about four options. So for each couple, we'll say, here's, here's four options that have kind of risen to the top that might be the, the most probable options that are going to work the best for you. And then what we do is we take those options and we incorporate them with their, their, their retirement plan. If they have a pension... If they have other investable resources, what's the best combination strategy to deliver the income they're going to need, not only at point of retirement when they give up the W-2 income, but also 15, 20 years down the road to help combat with inflation as well. Social Security is one of the few pensions that have a cost of living adjustment. Most pensions out there do not have a cost of living adjustment, which means that payment, if it's $2,000 a month today, it's going to be $2,000 a month 20 years from now, which is not going to buy as much good goods and services as what it did 20 years prior. Are so most pensions like that? Most pensions are like that. There are a few, most of them government pensions that, that do have a cost of living adjustment, but most do not. Social Security is one that does. So it's important to utilize that to the best of your advantage to make sure that you can live throughout the whole course of your retirement to provide the means necessary to maintain your lifestyle. While you're on that cost of a living adjustment or COLA, as it's referred to, Medicare and COLA are, I guess, aligned uh, in a similar way. In so some way, the, the COLA has only been an automatic increase since 1975. 1975 is when there was an automatic increase that's implemented. Now, when I say automatic increase, that does not mean there is an increase every single year. Because they're, they're, and we went through a period of, I think it was 2010 to maybe 2015, there was 0% increase every single year. So it doesn't, there is not always an increase. Historically, it's averaged about 2.5% two, two since 1975 when it started. But where Medicare comes into play, there is a separate increase on Medicare payments. So if you're taking Social Security and you're also on Medicare Part B, as of 2019, the Medicare Part B payments are, are going, or I'm sorry, as of 2020, the Medicare Part B payments are $144 for most people. It is income dependent. So if you are a higher wage earner over the last two years, you're going to pay more. But for most people, it's $144 a month. Now, in 2000 and what was it? 2016, Part B premiums increased by 16%, which is substantially higher increase than what Social Security recipients sure. received. But there's this provision in, in Medicare that says if your Social Security increases do not exceed your Medicare Part B premium increases, then you're held harmless. So it's a hold harmless provision within Medicare, which means that the increase on Medicare Part B premiums cannot exceed what your Social Security increases are. But what happens is they can play catch-up the following years. So as an example, in 2016, Medicare Part B premiums increased by 16%. In 2016, I don't remember exactly what it was. Let's call Social Security increase 1%. Well, the Part B premiums 
you didn't realize the full increase because your Social Security payments didn't increase that much. But in 2017, Social Security increased. In 2018, Social Security increased. So they'll continue to take those prior increases out of your future increases of Social Security down the road. Does that make sense? I think so. I think I got it. So eventually, basically, your Part B premiums will catch up to where they need to be. Okay. It's just going to take some time, depending upon what the increases in Social Security are. So, yeah, there, there is a, there's a relationship between what you pay on, on Medicare premiums versus what your Social Security increases are. Let's talk a little bit about the payments. Um, in June of 2019, the average payment monthly was $1,470. That's about $17,000 a year. Uh, the payments are calculated, Lauren, by the 35 highest wage earning years. Is that correct? Yeah. So what they do is they take the top 35 wage earning years, and that's important because most pensions, most pensions, they use the top three, they, or the average three uh, years, highest wage earning years, or the average five. So a lot of people think that Social Security, that's exactly how they do it, and it's not. They use the top 35 wage earning years. So as a part of your Social Security maximum strategy is to review all 35 wage earning years that go into that calculations, that into those calculations. And we see mistakes on that reporting all the time. So go to ssa.gov, create a username, create a password, and, and make sure that the reported earnings are accurate. Because a lot of times we'll see a zero instead of a reported wage. So if you really made $50,000 in 2016, there could be a zero reported, which means you're not getting any credit for that $50,000 year. I'm trying to think back. I can't tell you what I made 10 years ago. Well, I took some time out of the workforce, so my, my situation's a little different. But trying to go back 35 years, do you find that they need to accurately know what they made each year? Or more is it more important to look for zeros? What we do when we review the statements, we're looking for inconsistencies. So zeros definitely pop out. But if we have a consistent increase, right, a couple thousand dollars every year, but then it drops down one year by $10,000, we're looking for that. That could be an error there. Sure. Okay. Yeah. But that's why it's important to review it every year because you're right. I mean, look, we're trying to remember back 30 years ago. <laughs> I can't remember back 10 years. Yeah. And then even if you find a zero, trying to prove what it is that you really made becomes much more difficult. Whereas if you look every year, review it, make sure it's reported accurately. They don't send those pieces of paper in the mail. And I remember when I was, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you get a piece of paper that said what you made every year. They don't yeah. send those out anymore, right? Well, they changed that substantially uh, in many times over the last decade. So they started sending them out or they started sending them to less people. They started sending, uh, resending them to everybody. And then they started resending or sending them to less people. And uh, really I've lost track. So yeah. I don't even know. I don't think we get them anymore. anymore. I, I just remember getting almost young and I, you know, you like when I was 14, I think it said $250 or something. Like, oh, right. that's cool to kind of see. That's right. I worked for parks and rec that year or whatever. Yeah. They're, they're really trying to drive everybody online right now. So, Which makes sense. Yeah. They're trying to drive everybody at SSA.gov, create a username, password, and then you can see everything you, you need to know about your social and do you find that families and individuals you work with have a pretty good handle on their full retirement age um, and when they can start taking the benefits? Not, not necessarily. I mean, it, it, that's a movie number as well. So there's, I mean, it's unless you're actually paying attention to Social Security, Social Security law, most people don't have a real good handle on what that is. And that's why we make that a part of the retirement plan. Your full retirement age is 66. Your full retirement age is 66 and six months. So it's, uh, it's something that we point out to everybody as a part of their Social Security analysis and their retirement plan. What do people need to know about the possibility of prorated benefits? Well, that's an interesting 
way to ask that question. I think what we're talking about here is that some people, sometimes there's a misconception that you have to wait the full year to get the increase. So as an example, from your full retirement age, let's say your full retirement age is 66. If you wait from, don't take your benefits at 66, you take it at 67, you get an 8% increase on what that benefit is. So some people know that, and they, but they think they have to wait all the way until 67 to get that increase. The prorated benefits means that you can actually take your benefit at 66 in two months. You're not going to get the full 8%. It's going to be a prorated amount based on the months that you did delay. So you actually get an increase every single month that you delay. You don't have to wait the full year. And the Social Security game definitely has some different moving parts if you've been married or are married. If you are ma- if you have been married, and that, we could talk about this a long time, if you have been married, you're no longer married, you may have more options than if you've always been single. If you're currently married, you do have more options than if you're have, you have always been single. If you've been divorced before, but now you're remarried, now you might have options on your current spouse, you might have options on your you're a former spouse. So there's it's a whole new world of different options if you have ever been married, potentially, or if you are currently married. And being married 10 years is when some of those options come into play. You have to be married at least 10 years, right? For, for some people, but if even if you've been married for a year and your spouse passes away, now you have some options off that off that deceased spouse. So the 10 year is, is one of the rules that a lot of people are familiar with, but it only is applicable in some situations. Sometimes it's not 10 years at all, but this, this goes into the complexities of social security, right? I mean, I, I can't even answer that question really straight because there are so many different sure, it's, if yeah. ends. And that's why, again, I mean, we're always talking about this on, on the show, uh, regardless of what topic we are talking about, uh, how it's, how important it is to make sure that you have a customized plan to you because, there's uh, nobody nobody has a situation like yours and you want to make sure that your resources are are fine-tuned to match up what your situation is and and correct me you have to take it by age 70 i mean is it kind of like rmds like by 70 i have to take it we can't not take it right there's no financial benefit to you to not take it after age 70 okay unless you just feel like you want to donate to uncle sam because it does not continue to grow based on you delaying so you would want to take it no later than age 70 okay and, and that's one of the laws that could change, too. So as especially with the RMD age increasing from 70 and a half to 72, people are living longer. So that would be one change that is probably on the docket is to allow people to delay not to take it past age 70. But waiting until 70 isn't just automatically the best option. Well, that's a mentality that's shifted over the years as well, because it used to be, and it really wasn't that long ago, that people were saying, take it as soon as you can, take it as soon as you can. You're not going to live forever. It's going to go broke. You might as well get what you can out of it. And now there's really been a push by many pundits or experts to say, no, delay as long as you possibly can, especially with what the bank banks are paying us right now in our investments. If, you're, if you have money at the bank, it's paying you less than 1%, maybe 1%, maybe you can find some specials out there at 2%. But if you delay taking your social security benefits past full retirement age, that's 8% a year of guaranteed return on, on guaranteed lifetime income. So it is, it is appealing for a lot of people to think about delaying their benefits up until age 70, but that's not necessarily the case. So what, what we do is again, we start with the analysis. Let's break down the 81 different options to a more manageable subset. And then let's put it into your retirement plan. Oftentimes what we find on our initial social security analysis is that delayed strategy 
does not always produce the highest amount of benefit to them over the course of their lifetime. And it could also mean that they their legacy plan, meaning if leaving money to their kids or their beneficiaries, they have less money to leave by delaying as well. So just to kind of demonstrate how that works, we have an example here. Pretty simple example, Keith and Carol. If they take it at 65 versus 66 versus 67 or 70, just the Social Security analysis by itself would say taking it at 70 produces the highest lifetime income. But once we put it into their plan and we say, here, you need, you need $6,000 a month, you have $600,000 in investable resources, you have a small pension of $1,000 a month, and you want to implement some tax strategy, actually not waiting until 70 or not waiting until 70 ends up being your best strategy. And oftentimes with Keith and Carol or a situation like that, it's more of a combination strategy where maybe Carol will take her benefits at 64 and then Keith will extend and delay his benefits maybe up until 67, maybe not 70. And that actually produces the highest benefit to them, not only from a Social Security standpoint, but also from from an investable resource standpoint. They have the most amount of money left over um, at, at whatever their whatever assumptions we use from a, a life expectancy standpoint, maybe age 85 or age 86. Rochelle, do you feel like you've gone <coughs> to school? Social Security 101, like if you had to take the quiz right now, would you pass? I mean, I feel pretty good about it. The hardest part about Social Security, which I've heard Lauren say numerous times, is knowing the acronyms. <laughs> so COLA. Sure. FRA, PIA. What's FRA stand for? Full retirement age. Yes. And See, they, we're, we're learning. We're learning. use how many of the top wage earning years? 35. And up to how many options do you have? 81. See, you're a good teacher, Lauren. Awesome. You're, you you're a good that. professor. We are ready to take the social security quiz, but we've really just kind of scratched the surface on some of the things that go into social security and making that big decision. We have some other resources. If you want to learn more about social security on our YouTube channel, we've got clips that, from our TV show on various aspects of social security. We've also got classes and some of them go over social security, especially if you're someone who's getting ready to retire. If you're taking your journey to retirement, you might want to attend a class and really uh, narrow in on, on getting ready to make that election. So go to MerkelPlan.com for a lot of resources there. That's M-E-R-K-L-E Plan.com. But you can always listen to this podcast. We'll have more information on guiding you to and through retirement. Thanks for listening. Merkel Retirement Planning is an independent financial services firm helping individuals create retirement strategies using a variety of investments and insurance products to custom suit their goals and objectives. Any information discussed in these shows is for educational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. Investment advisory services are offered through Elite Retirement Planning, LLC. Insurance services are offered through MRP Insurance, LLC. It's tax time. It is tax time. I noticed I got a little form from Merkle Retirement Planning. Oh, yeah, you got a form? I got a form. <laughs> now I can file taxes. <laughs> oh, the W-2? Yeah. <clears throat> what did you think we were talking about? <laughs> Pink <good>. slip. <laughs> Molly, it's been a real pleasure. <laughs> Today is your last day. <laughs> it's a form. <laughs>